It's great to see so many people here on this very timely and important subject. And uh, apart from welcoming you, my other purpose is to welcome and introduce our speaker, who really needs very little introduction, um, because he's known to many either personally or through the wonderful oral history. But well, I'm here to welcome Dr. John Stevenson. Um, who we welcome despite the fact that he is an alumnus of Worcester. But we're very open-minded, broad-minded here. Uh, but a former lecturer at Oriel. Yes. Um, uh, before uh, departing briefly to the University of Sheffield and then returning to Oxford uh, to be both at Worcester and also at Greyfriars Paul. Uh, and John has done Oriel enormous service uh, in his career, both as a lecturer but also as a uh, a very major contributor to the history of Oriel, which was published last year, and which, if you don't own or haven't read, I'm sure this talk will inspire you uh, to learn more. Uh, and uh, John is going to talk about Oriel and the Great War, a subject touched on in the three chapters he wrote of the Oriel history, uh, but more to follow. So, John, we're very well, very, very warm welcome from us, and we're looking forward to your talk. Thank you very much. Well, inevitably, in a year like this, the Great War continues to exercise a powerful grip upon popular and historical imagination. This year, we have begun what looks as though it will be a four-year-long commemoration of different aspects of the Great War. I suspect only when we end in 2018. In 2019, the BBC will start up on the Second World War. <laughs> As almost anyone who uh, has seen any of the programmes uh, this year about the outbreak of the First World War, as everybody will know, uh, the First World War burst upon England somewhat unexpectedly. The preoccupations of the Liberal government of the day were with the home rule struggle in Ireland. And if we were to replicate the obsessions of the last few days with the question of Scottish potential Scottish independence, you'll have some idea of the mood of the British government in July uh, 1914. Uh, certainly most people were thinking in July 1914 about civil war in Ireland rather than what was going on in the Balkans. As late as the end of July 1914, the Liberal Prime Minister Asquith was confiding in letters to the young lady with whom he was infatuated at the time that he was poring over maps of the parishes of Ireland, deciding which bits of Ulster might be permitted to delay entering into a home rule Ireland. Only in the first days of August did it uh, burst upon the government that it would have to do something about the crisis that was developing in Europe. In Oxford, it was a little different 1913 had been a quiet year in Oxford and, and in Oriel. Uh, in September 1913, the editor of the recently established Oriel Record was almost in despair. There was nothing much to report. The editor, he said, must not be blamed, he wrote, if this is a dull number. When nothing happens, there is nothing to record. Then in uh, 1914, in the academic year 1913-14, as Europe teetered on the brink of a crisis that was to plunge it into all-out war, uh, Oxford's summer term came to what appeared to be a peaceful end. 
either he did traditionally with the examinations in the examination schools, with a college ball, and with the honorary degree ceremony, and senior. That in senior was notable because the majority of those receiving honorary doctorates were in fact Germans. Amongst others, Richard Strauss received a doctorate in music. Uh, Der Rosenkavalier had just been uh, premiered to great acclaim in Covent Garden in January 1914. A doctorate of civil war was awarded to the German ambassador, a close friend of Margot Asquith, the uh, Prime Minister's wife. And fatefully, that in senior celebrated the profound contribution of German culture to European art and science, and the growing inter internationalisation, particularly in areas like biblical studies and science. Henry Tizard, who came to his fellowship in Oriel in 1911 as the first chemistry fellow, uh, had studied in Germany and had published uh, Walter, a translation of Walter Nurt's theoretical chemistry uh, from his work that he'd done with him in Berlin in 1908. The traffic was two-way, as well as British scholars going to Germany to uh, seek advancement in their disciplines. Under the terms of the Rhodes Trust, up to 15 German Rhodes scholars were recruited to Oxford each year usually spending two years at the university. As selection was in the Kaiser's personal gift, most of those who came to Oxford were from the nobility or other prominent families. The first of Oriol's pre-war cohort of German Rhodes scholars was Count Schwerin von Krosig, who attended from 1905 to 1907, reading for a diploma in economics. He rode for the college and the college record in the 1930s reported that he was, had been universally popular. Why were they reporting it in the 1930s? He'd just been appointed finance minister in the Nazi government, a position he was to hold until 1945. War broke out on the 4th of August 1914, in the middle, of course, of the long vacation. Most undergraduates and fellows were away from Oxford during the first rush to the colours that occurred in that month. Uh, the OTC, the Officer Training Corps, did however notify all its past and present members on the 2nd of August that they should return to Oxford and enlist. Enlistment was quite easy for members of Oriel because the OTC office was in 9 Alfred Street, just a few hundred yards away from the College Lodge. And of course, those early days of August and September 1914 were notable for the enormous enthusiasm with which people flocked to the colours. An undergraduate at Balliol, perhaps one of the most famous examples of writing about this time, Harold Macmillan, summed up the mood of many. The general view was that it would be over by Christmas. Our major anxiety was by hook or by crook, not to miss it. Oriel had the distinction fact of the highest rate of enlistment of any college by the end of 1914. Approximately three quarters of those who had been in residence in 1913-14 uh, were in the colours by the end of 1914. Enlistment reached as far back as some was matriculated as early as 1875, as well as cohorts of people who had been admitted to the college but had not yet come up and matriculated. 
The rush to the colours was uh, a general, I think, throughout Oxford, but Oriel does have the distinction. It was noted at the, um, uh, by, by Provost Phelps in 1915. Uh, it was noted that there was uh, a higher enlistment at Oriel than in any other college. It was not only undergraduates, of course, who joined up. Younger fellows flocked to the colours. Henry Tizard, who I've already mentioned, had sailed to Australia in July 1914 to attend the annual meeting of the British Association. News of the internationalisation of scholarship goes back a long way, as you can see. Um, news of the outbreak of war reached the ship as it approached Australia. And although the meeting went ahead, I think Tizard just got off the boat and then turned back and went straight back home to enlist. By October, he was in the Royal Garrison Artillery at Portsmouth, a long way from Australia and the British Association. The future fellow and provost Jane Clark, in 1914 a prize fellow at All Souls, but also a former member of the OTC, was commissioned immediately the war broke out into the 1st Battalion of the Post Office Rifles. So the most obvious and first effect of the Great War on Oriel was that it was drained of its lifeblood, the undergraduates, those who joined up. As I've said, Oriel was particularly heavily affected. Of 132 Oriel men in residence in 1913, 116 were in uniform by Christmas 1914. As the Oriel record for September 1915 noted, starting last Michaelis with only 35 in residence, we have steadily and relentlessly diminished. One man after another has obtained a commission through the OTC or found other war work. And by the end uh, of the summer, we found ourselves reduced to a dauntless 15. Um, the process was inexorable, for not only were existing undergraduates joining up, but also as uh, schoolboys uh, reached the age of 18, they were going directly into the armed forces rather than coming up to read for their degrees, or quite a lot of them were anyway. A few did still manage to come up. There were 550 undergraduates in residence in the whole university in 1916, but by 1918 there were only 369. These were mainly men unfit for military service, <coughs> foreign students, women, and one or two people who were still too young to enlist, but who were waiting for their first medical examination to go. And if one wants to see, perhaps very readily, uh, the way in which Oxford was transformed so quickly by the Great War. Let me just show you one visual aid. Uh, this will be a familiar, perhaps too familiar site for many, the examination schools. Laid out for examinations, please don't suffer too much of a shock, uh, in 1913. Familiar site, perhaps another horrid site for many. Um, but this is, of course, what the examination schools look like by 1915. They'd been converted into a military hospital. Uh, those of you who are ghoulish enough uh, might wish to go down into the basement of the examination schools, where I think you can still see, though they may now have removed it, um, the mortuary room, where there is still a mortuary slab, because of course functioning as a hospital, you obviously have people who died, and therefore they have to have facilities for dealing with their bodies. Those were still there in the basement of the examination schools, uh, 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 certainly 10 years ago. Now, the, pro the provost who presided over this emptying 
uh, College was Lancelot Ridley Phelps, elected to the, to the provostship in, in December 1914. Few provosts have taken over their responsibilities at such an unpropitious and indeed, in many senses, tragic time for the college and its history. Few also would achieve his almost legendary status in college memory and folklore. With his clerical garb, his black straw hat and his long white beard, much longer than mine, and habit of repeating phrases, the Felper soon became the focus for countless stories, some true, many I'm sure apocryphal. Um, Phelps taught political economy uh, and was not nearly, nearly an eccentric. He was an acknowledged expert on vagrancy and served on the Great Royal Commission on the Poor Law for 1905-7 alongside people like Beatrice Webb, helping to, and helped to write its report. The work was arduous. It involved visiting poor law unions and, and workhouses, the length and breadth of the United Kingdom, including Ireland, and he has a little joke in his memoirs where he says, will I need to get a, will I need to get a passport and a gun before I go to Ireland, because Ireland was seen to be so turbulent at the time. But even after returning to his life at Oriel, he served as a councillor in Oxford and actually as chairman of the Board of Guardians, which was virtually the equivalent in a much smaller state of, of, of the uh, really being chairman of social services. He was said to know every tramp in pre-war Oxford by name, and was often, of course, mistaken for one himself. <laughs> the stories about Phelps, which might just lighten our mood, I just have to mention at least two. Um, th th this, this habit he had of repeating himself. Uh, A.J.P. Taylor, the famous historian who came up to Oriel in the 1920s, has a lot of rather harsh things to say about Oriel, but he did actually rather like Phelps. Uh, and he reports this story that one of Taylor's tutors, uh, a man called Stanley Cohn, was greeted by Phelps after his election to his fellowship. A very close election, Mr. Cohn, elected by one vote, and it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a wonderful account uh, of an. He interviewed every uh, prospective undergraduate personally. Uh, and the man gives an account of his interview uh, uh, with, with Phelps. Met at the door of the provost lodgings by Phelps himself. The interview began in the hall. Come in, my dear sir. And, and where do you come from, I mean? From the Isle of Wight, sir, I replied. And have you read The Silence of Dean Maitland? The Silence of Deep Maitland? Um, not yet, sir, but you will, but you will. Uh, that's good, that's good, that's good, but you will. These phrases were repeated ad infinitum until they gradually faded away. We indulged in various pleasantries for a short while till he closed the conversation by telling me the date of the following Michaelmas term. I should say in parenthesis that he took no notice at all of my father who was with me throughout the interview. Wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> get away with that <laughs> If Phelps' work on the Royal Commission and his continuing involvement with the practical problems of the poor law in Oxford gave the lie to the later image of a man primarily as an eccentric, nothing could have prepared, prepared him for what his term as provost was to hold for him as the Great War broke <coughs> with all its force over his beloved college. He began his provostship in what was a rapidly diminishing college and the demands of military service took away most of its inhabitants. 
The rapid, rapid, uh, sorry, rapid emptying of the college contrib contributed to Phelps's first major action as provost. In the famous agreement to allow Somerville to lease the third quad, the St Mary Hall quad, quadrangle, for the duration of the war. This was because Somerville's premises were taken over by the Radcliffe Infirmary to expand the, uh, the nursing facilities required by the rising tide of casualties. Uh, as a result, Somerville moved into the third quad, set up their own lodge on the entrance into, uh, into Oriel Lane, and lived an almost entirely separate existence. It was made all the more separate by the insistence of the principal of Somerville that the connecting uh, gateways into the second quad should be bricked up to allow no intercourse of any kind between uh, any remaining male undergraduates and female undergraduates. Uh, it was referred to rather amusingly by the, by the uh, Oriel record as the Amazonian invasion, but actually the Amazonian invasion, as they put it, seems to have passed off quite quickly. In the midst of this somewhat forced normality, uh, the war threw up some rather unexpected challenges. There was the question of how you cope, for example, with the wages of the college staff, who are now much diminished by the absence of undergraduates and their usual tips. There were the questions of things like rationing. Rationing became quite serious by 1917, and it was necessary to reduce the rations and alter the normal arrangements by which people, either in residence as undergraduates or as members of staff, were, were fed. But the promised main job during this uh, long period when the college was sort of virtually empty was actually writing letters to undergraduates, many of them, of course, on now on active service. All through the war, he poured out in his letters uh, uh, news about Oxford, news about the college. These undoubtedly provided a, an important link for many of those serving in the trenches. With over 700 Oriel men in the forces during the Great War, this letter writing was actually a very considerable burden. It was almost a full-time job, but one which Phelps took on willingly. But few provosts, perhaps only his successor in the Second World War, can have had the unenviable task of writing so many letters of condolence to the relatives of those who died on active service. And people, of course, or students, of course, who he knew um, intimately. And some of those letters, of course, are now on exhibition. A very good exhibition has been put together by the archivist and the librarian, showing some of those letters to, to, to uh, parents. Indeed, some of, the, uh, some of the undergraduates who are now on active service seem to have regarded uh, Phelps as a kind of uh, a clearinghouse for any information that they might want to pass on. Uh, you have undergraduates writing uh, for advice. There was one man, uh, Henry Napier, wrote from the Bermondsey Mission, which was a, a, a body doing good work amongst the poor of Bermondsey, in March 1915. He'd been rejected by the Medical Board for active service. Uh, he wanted to continue his work at the mission, but wanted to do something useful in the war. And he wrote asking Phelps for advice. We don't know what the advice was, because actually within six months he was in the armed forces, fit or unfit, uh, he, was, he went off to war. Another asked him to um, send a letter of comfort to the parents of a nephew of his who'd been killed in action. 
Another asked the provost whether he would visit his adjutant, who was now lying wounded in Somerville. He is only 21, wrote the young man, and he needs somebody to, to go and see him. I am myself going strong so far. Uh, the man who wrote the letter was only 25, but would later rise during the course of the war to be Brigadier General Hunt on the General's staff. But it was not only Phelps's correspondence, and no doubt that of other fellows and tutors, which helped to knit together the community of Oriel at war in the trenches. The record came into its own, which obviously had been intended for happier circumstances, but now did obviously provide some kind of link. The Oriolenses in early 1918 on the Western Front, in Italy, Salonica, Mesopotamia, or in the fleet, might have been forgiven the slightly peremptory editorial from the Reverend Hall, the editor, requesting that subscribers who are away on military service would materially assist the editor if they would inform him to what address they which the, the Oriole record to the sent. And then he sort of opined about the role of the record and its importance. He said he, they had considered discontinuing the record. But nonetheless, it, it, it is, he says it's sometimes difficult to start up something you lay down, so perhaps we'd better continue with it. And secondly, men on active service seem to welcome our paper as a link, however slight, with their own life. And lastly, that it affords a convenient means for publishing and circulating an amended list of Oriel men on service. By the way, subscriptions from two and six and should now be sent to the Reverend Hall Oriel College. You can imagine receiving and reading this if you were sort of in the third battle of Ypres. Uh, sort of, well, it probably obviously did provide some kind of link. But of course the record was now beginning to show uh, not only who was on active service, but to carry an increasingly unpleasant list of people who were being killed, uh, obituary lists of various kinds. And of course this extended not only to undergraduates and prospective undergraduates, but also to the college staff. In March 1917, the loss of the college butler was announced, Mr Sidney Smith, who had volunteered and was a lance corporal in the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry. He was, he was recorded in the record as a keen volunteer, an ardent politician on the liberal side, and a good musician. It was little wonder that when the war came to an end, there was a sort of collective sigh of relief as people suddenly realised that this nightmare was at an end. And there was an amusing, um, quiet celebration of the end of the war in the Oriel Record, which reported the armistice as follows. It is astonishing how myths spring up. A ridiculous, sto a ridiculous story has got about and has actually found credence that on the evening of the day on which the armistice was declared, a sound as of the popping of corks was distinctly heard, was distinctly heard in hall. Some people it, it had even the hardihood to assert that the strains of God save the king were heard floating on the wintry air. This is simply absurd, for no one has ever heard of singing in hall during dinner. Such things do not happen. <laughs> the whole thing probably originated in the fact that the provost did make a few well-chosen remarks in celebration of the happy event, and it has been foolishly inferred that the king's health was drunk, an impossible supposition, for as all the world knows, Oriel was a dry college during the war, and you cannot drink the king's health in water. 
So that was how the armistice was greeted. In the greater tragedy uh, of the war, in which over three quarters of a million members of the British Armed Forces uh, lost their lives, Oxford and Oriel suffered particularly heavy casualties. The idea of a lost generation, which cast such a shadow over the interwar, interwar years, was rooted in the loss of the young, of the brightest and the best, and those most willing to serve, represented in the, in the volunteers of all classes and conditions who had flocked to the colours in the great wave of patriotic fervour which had gripped the country in the first months of the war. The Oxford undergraduates who had flooded into the armed forces in those early months and continued, continued to do so as the war progressed, epitomised this tragedy. With the highest participation rates of all the Oxford colleges in the war, it was inevitable that Oriel paid a terrible price. Of the, 720, of the 725 members of the college who served in the war, 162 died. Many more, never counted, were wounded, some of course very seriously. This was, of course, more than twice the numbers of those killed in the Second World War from a very much larger college. The death toll represented just over 22% of those who had served, second only to Corpus Christi in its scale, and significantly higher than the average for the university as a whole at just over 18%. As in the university and country at large, however, the losses were disproportionately among the younger age group, the junior officer class, falling most heavily upon those who had matriculated between 1910 and 1914, where mortality rates rose to almost three in every 10 of those who served. In addition, there were 19 deaths amongst those who had been admitted to the college, but had not yet happened, had an opportunity to attend and matriculate. I think they seem, in many ways, some of the most tragic. As the university historian has remarked of Oxford high casualty rate, the younger the cohort, the greater the risk of, risk of death. I think this helps to explain why um, Oxford and Oriel had obviously such a very high casualty rate. And if you look at the war memorials, you'll see that the, uh, the number of uh, deaths are greatest amongst those who matriculated in 1910, 1911 and 1912. Of course, a word has to be said about the lost generation as, a, uh, a, 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 as a, an encapsulation of the war. Even with these almost horrific casualty rates, <coughs> as high as perhaps one in three for the, those groups who were most unfortunate, the matriculants of 1913-1912, even with those horrific casualty rates, one in three, it was of course not a complete lost generation. Two-thirds survived, though many of them would have been wounded. When some people wrote very emotively after the war that they could not come back to Oxford because no one they knew was still alive, well, they were slightly exaggerating. Quite a lot of people they knew had been killed. But of course, many also survived. The casualty rate for young officers was a little bit higher than that for general serving soldiers. It's about 15% for all those who served of all ranks it's somewhat higher for the officer corps. So there was this sense of a disproportionate loss amongst, uh, 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 amongst the young officer class. There was truth in that. 
There was also truth, or a feeling, which perhaps is a way to put it rather but more accurately, a feeling that it was a lost generation of the best, that it was those who had volunteered first who had suffered the highest casualties in 1914 to 1915. Uh, there was this sense, and, and you, you could see it replicated not only in Oriel but in many other uh, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, great public schools, grammar schools, the inns of court and so on, that uh, a, a large swathe had been cut through those who had most enthusiastically volunteered in those early years. Amongst these appalling losses, there was also recognition of the distinctions which many of them, with which many had served. It's an odd thing that we don't actually say very much about the number of medals that were earned by those who served. I think it's only recently with the um, giving of awards to people who'd served in Afghanistan that we once again to give prominence to actually the decoration of those who served. Oxford, uh, Oxford and Oriel did have a distinguished record of uh, uh, acts of gallantry which were commemorated with medals. We have one VC, uh, several MCs, several Croix de Guerre. These are often not recorded these days. It's somewhat seem to be not quite proper to celebrate gallantry, but gallantry clearly there was, and we should not, uh, in fact, forget it. By Hillary term 1919, undergraduates began to reappear in Oxford as the forces demobilised. Austerity was rapidly being <coughs> set aside, and the sense of normality returning, confirmed by a college dance on the 24th of May, 1919. Somerville, however, remained in possession of the St Mary's Quadrangle. In a not rather untypical situation, the War Office had dragged its feet over evacuating Somerville, leaving uh, the ladies of Somerville uh, somewhat uh, hanging spare, occupying uh, the third quad at a time when the Provost and the Oriel College were itching to repossess the property that the ladies uh, were still occupying. The timetable that the War Office had set looked increasingly unrealistic and clearly there was a degree of friction beginning to arise between uh, Somerville and, and, and Oriel over their continued occupancy of the third quad. But what gave the matter a slightly amusing uh, character was the famous pickaxe episode which took place in June uh, 1919. By this time, of course, undergraduates had returned to occupy the first two quads and their digs, and there had indeed been some celebrations for success on the river in June 1919. It was a very hot night, apparently, and several of the young ladies had decided that it was too hot to sleep in their, in their, in their staircases and had put their bedding on the grass in the third quadrangle to enjoy a cool evening slumber. They were awakened by the sounds of a pickaxe being taken to the wall, <laughs> separating the second and third quad. Uh, this pickaxe had been left by some workmen who were doing some work in uh, one of the other quadrangles. A group of rather boisterous male undergraduates were trying to effect an entry into the third quadrangle. The breach uh, was alerted, or the, the, the sound of this breach being made alerted the, uh, the, the, the lady porter. In, who immediately went to uh, see what was going on and she found that several inebriated young men had crawled through the hole they had made and were dancing triumphantly around the pickaxe by means of which they had effected their entry. 
and which they cast on the ground in the middle of the quad. The young women, of course, by this time had fled to their staircase. <laughs> Alerted by the Lady Porter, the first Somerville done on the scene was the classics tutor Miss Lorimer, who had hitherto been conscientiously working through the night on her translation of some dictionaries. Her command, gentlemen have the courtesy to return to your quarters, was actually sufficient to rout the revellers who retreated through the hole they made in the wall. Thereupon Miss Lorimer, a stout scholar clearly, returned to her books. The lady porter now reported the incident to the principal, Principal Penrose, who immediately dressed, roused her secretary, Vera Farnell, from sleep with the words, there are men in the quad, <laughs> please, please get up and come with me. Within minutes, the principal and her secretary had arrived on the scene of the Oriel incursion, uh, just in time to meet the Oriel porter who'd stuck his head through the hole in the wall, uh, and uh, a somewhat dishevelled form, uh, the, the Oxford porter, uh, said, uh, you know, I think everything's going to be all right. Well, it wasn't all right, because very quickly, a somewhat inebriate Oriel male graduate stuck his head through the wall uh, and had to be pushed back forcibly by the principal of Somerville. <laughs> Provost Phelps was Somerville, clearly hadn't, didn't know what to do. Uh, uh, but he, he said, oh, everything will now be all right, you see. I'm sure everybody can go to bed and that no more will happen. Well, I'm afraid this wasn't good enough for Principal Penrose. She decided that a watch would have to be kept <laughs> on the whole, all night, by her. <laughs> So, accompanied by a copy of the Oxford Book of English Verse, she whiled away the whole night by the hole, preventing any further ingress from drunken Oxford uh, Oriel undergraduates. Uh, the next day, there were apologies all round. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Provost Phelps was contrived, everybody was contrived, uh, and, and the thing was hushed up. Eventually, of course, uh, some of them were to go back to that go back to Somerville, and uh, everything ended, what you might say, happily. The tale of the First World War is partly seen in what I've been saying and in the, uh, the, the lovely Oriel Commemoration document that's being produced in the exhibition, is obviously told in terms of the horrific losses of, of, young, of young life. It's perhaps worth ending on just a quick word about some of the perhaps positive sides one can, one can make. College life very quickly resumed. Uh, there is something about the cycle of, of, of Oxford college life that it quickly uh, resuscitates itself and recycles itself with new generations. There must have been a slight awkward period when there were undergraduates who had served in the trenches, who were coming back to Oxford to complete their degrees, and when there were fresh people coming up from schools who'd had no experience of war. You would have veterans of, of Ypres uh, and the fleet alongside callow youths who knew nothing of the things that they had seen. But within a year or two, the wartime cohort had gone through and Oxford life resumed. For some, uh, it was, uh, you, you could say it was a, a, they just carried on where they'd left off. <coughs> Though you wonder, in some cases, just what that actually meant. Two of, uh, of Oriel's great um, literati are Seller and Yateman of 1066 and all that. They're two interesting examples of people who did serve in the war and did survive it. Um, 
Yakeman, I think it was, who was so, uh, had been wounded and was so ill that although he continued his degree, he had to take an agritat in the end. And Yakeman, who was said to have been so badly damaged by shrapnel that he was, he, he was like a colander and was warned by his doctors never to, never to jump on a rugby ball, but in fact ignored their advice and served in the, in the second 15th of the university. He did take his degree. But when they wrote their famous knockabout history book, 1066 and all that, it does have something of the grim humour that we associate with the cartoons of Baumfeather and the rather grim wartime humour. It was said of, I think it's Yeatman, that he, that apocryphal story, that he was in the shell hole where the shell landed and one man was killed, another very badly wounded, another driven man, and he was the only survivor. So in that knockabout humour that you find in Sellers and Yeatman, 1066 and all that, you perhaps do have a residual legacy of the Great War. Perhaps more importantly was the general shake-up it gave to Oxford. Women were admitted to degrees shortly after they'd been given the vote in 1918. Uh, Oxford was the subject of the Asquith Commission, which took a hard look at the university, and although it made no very radical changes, did introduce some that were significant. Interestingly, women were admitted to degrees, but of course the colleges remained separate, and were not to become covers. There, there was talk about co-education, and some villanorial had practised it to a certain degree during the war. But it didn't happen. The women's colleges continued their separate way until the 1980s when co-education became more general. An important development was the greater intervention of the state in everyday life, and that did begin to affect the colleges. It affected the university. For the first time after the war, the university took government money to fund its scientific laboratories the process by which the government began to partly fund Oxford and Cambridge began shortly after the Great War. It was a consequence of the great expansion of state activities during that Great War. Thirdly, for the college itself, um, there were very important effects in the, in, the, in the immediate and medium term. In the years just before the Great War, Land was a very poor investment. Rent, agricultural prices were low, and the rents that could be charged for land were, were accordingly so, and were often fixed in any case. Most of the income of the college came either from the rents it got from its estates, or from the fee income from undergraduates. During the war, agricultural prices were good, but and when the war ended, a lot of people got out of land very fast. And Oriel took the lead amongst Oxford College in, in selling off its estates and putting its money in government stock, raising its income probably something like three times over its pre-war level. It meant that as the 20s and 30s wore on, the college was actually embarking on an expansionist phase, partly as a consequence of, of the war. It decided to sell its estates, to modernise its finances, if you like. And although in the very long term, that might have looked like a, a, a bad bet. In other words, if you'd held on to the property, it might have been worth a lot more after 1945 and the great property booms that followed. For the interwar years, it meant that the college enjoyed a higher income, it was able to found new fellowships, and to embark on what by the late 20s and 1930s you could almost call halcyon days. There were new fellowships, the college was doing very well academically, with lots of firsts, and was also doing extremely well sportingly. Everything looked absolutely fine. 
It was easy from that period to look back upon the Great War as just an episode that was long gone. So there were positives for Oriel, as there were for Oxford and indeed for the country from some aspects of the Great War. But of course, what we most feel today are the tremendous losses of those we never had a chance to enjoy the halcyon days that Oriel was still to enjoy. Thank you very much. Thank you.